Welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast, where we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring quality professionals within the healthcare industry. Our podcast will dive into the career journeys of leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. And now, your host, Jarvis Gray. Quality people, welcome to episode number 53 of the Healthcare Quality Cast Powered by the Quality Coaching Company. I am Jarvis Gray, and I am so excited to bring you today's episode. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Zane. Dr. Zane currently serves as the George B. Bodecker Professor and Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, Professor of Health Administration at the University of Colorado Business School, and Chief Innovation Officer for the University of Colorado Health System. Dr. Zane completed medical school at Temple University in Philadelphia, followed by residency training in emergency medicine at the John Hopkins School of Medicine. Prior to joining UC Health System, Dr. Zane held past physician leader roles at Johns Hopkins, Harvard Medical School, and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Zane is an innovator and researcher that is regarded widely for his ability to incorporate modern industrial engineering and informatics principles into care redesign, access, and clinical integration. Most recently, as Chief Innovation Officer at UC Health, Dr. Zane is focused on the development of novel industry and venture relationships to bring innovative solutions to healthcare. By partnering companies from small startups to multinationals and using the power of data science, remote monitoring, and prescriptive intelligence, he's attempting to fundamentally alter and improve the way in which healthcare is delivered. Dr. Zane has been widely published in peer-reviewed publications. His work has been featured in the Harvard Business Review and Wall Street Journal, and he has recently been named a New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst Thought Leader in Medicine. And here in episode number 53, Dr. Zane starts our show by quoting two of the most polarizing leaders of our era. Dr. Zane shares with us his impressive background and walks us through the day in the life of a chief innovation officer. He highlights a professional dark moment story connected with providing care to an undocumented citizen and how that moment has guided his path as a healthcare leader. He outlines the importance of building a world-class team and highlights guiding principles on a past organizational transformation with his team. He describes an amazing aha moment that exemplifies the power of going to the Gimba. We get firsthand insight into an innovation expert's view of upcoming changes across the healthcare industry. Dr. Zane delivers an insane amount of value sharing a range of tips on upcoming innovations and policy changes guaranteed to impact the future course of healthcare. Dr. Zane, this is without a doubt one of the most clip-worthy conversations that I've had to date. You delivered on every question that I threw your way and unapologetically brought value throughout this entire episode. And for that, sir, I salute you and I thank you on behalf of the Quality People community. Quality people, I hope that you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to clue in on Dr. Zane's consistent message around being unapologetic in your leadership and improvement efforts. Thank you as always for plugging in with our show. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group and we'll see you next week when we return with episode number 54 and another quality guest. All right. Thank you for joining in on another episode of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And today I'm here with my guest, Dr. Richard Zane. 
Dr. Zane, are you ready to share with some quality people? I'm ready. All right, wonderful. Well, Dr. Zane, we love to start every show with positive affirmations to really get our momentum going. So I would love if you could please share your favorite leadership quote or mindset, but also share with us why it appeals to you and how do you apply it on a daily basis? You know, I've got uh, lots of favorite uh, quotes. Um, I think there are two, if you'll allow me three uh, to, to quote. Um, my first quote is really attributable um, to Colin Powell, uh, and his quote is, there is no end to good, there's no end to the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. And the reason why that speaks to me and is so important uh, is that if you have a singular focus on the path ahead and what the goal is, and the goal is really to improve care and deliver better care, uh, and you don't care who gets the credit, then it's a, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The next quote is really attributable to Steve Jobs, and that's more of a, a management style uh, for me. And his quote is, don't hire smart people so you can tell them what to do, hire smart people so they tell you what to do. And the reason that really resonates with me is that the delivery of care is a team sport. Uh, there's no single individual that uh, is crucial uh, or the only person. Um, it takes an entire team to do that. And if you micromanage a team, it's, the, it's a death sentence. And really the best thing you can do is hire the right people, smart people, and let them do their stuff. Uh, and those are the two sort of quotes that, that speak to me the most. All right, wonderful. I, I personally love both of those. Colin Powell is one of my favorite leaderships to, leadership leaders to read about. Um, and I, I do personally love that Steve Jobs quote as well. But uh, Dr. Zane, I thought you said you had three. I'd love to hear that third one if, you, if you're open to it. I do. The third one is unattributable. I don't know who, uh, <laughs> who said it first, um, but it, it wasn't me. Uh, and that's compassion without competence is crap. And the reason why that's important to me is it's about execution. And I really love it when people work hard and I love it when uh, they love their job. But if we're not making a difference, it's all crap. All right. Wonderful. You can't get can't get any clearer than that for that uh, for that third quote there. So thank you very much for those quotes. Dr. Zane, thank you again for just plugging in with your time. Uh, for this podcast show. So I greatly appreciate it. I, I want to move you to my next question, which is more of a, a lead in with you and your role and your background. So I would love for you to, to briefly describe what it is you do there at UC Health. Um, you know, your professional background, what led you in, into this career path? Uh, I think the most accurate thing to say what led me into this career path is a undiagnosed case of hyperactive uh, disorder attention deficit disorder. I really um, have gone from one end of the spectrum to the other uh, in healthcare. Uh, and I love seeing things and I love process and I love being able to redesign process and get to a better outcome faster, cheaper, um, and just do better. So I have um, two roles here at UC Health and the University of Colorado. Uh, one, I'm a chair of the academic department of emergency medicine, a professor at the medical school and a professor at the business school. In that uh, role, I have responsibility for an academic department. I oversee the delivery of care uh, at a number of emergency departments, urgent care centers, and virtual health, run and oversee a research program and education program, including a residency and medical students. My other role is chief innovation officer for UC Health. Um, I have the role and responsibility of really looking 
uh, at innovation to change the way in which care is, is delivered. And I think when people think about innovation or say innovation, it can mean everything and nothing to people. Uh, and many people, when you say innovation, uh, they will think about a device or a product or an app. Um, when I think about innovation, I really think about a different mindset. Um, I really think about it as a, looking at something you've done every day and thinking, is there a better way to do this? Uh, it's really a cultural uh, embracing of a new mindset of a new way to do things. So those are my two rules. All right, wonderful. And um, Dr. Zane, I didn't give you a warning ahead of time, but I am really good about going off script with many of my questions. So I uh, would love to kind of take the first chance to go off script just a little bit. But uh, I have to admit, when I found your profile on LinkedIn, I immediately was attracted to your title because that was that was the thing that caught my eye. I was like, ooh, a chief innovation officer and, and kind of sat back almost like you said, I was thinking there was this um, big technology driven role or whatever the case may be, but I, I would love for you to maybe dig in a little bit deeper and share with us a day in the life. What, what does the role of a chief innovation officer look like kind of on that daily basis? Well, I don't think I can give you a day in the life of a chief innovation officer. I can give you the day in the life of this chief innovation officer. <laughs> Fair enough. I think, I think as you look across the country, uh, chief innovation officers are becoming uh, more common in healthcare. Uh, I started this a little less than three years ago, and it was very uncommon to have a chief innovation officer, and it was extremely uncommon to have a chief innovation officer that was a, a physician who had clinical and academic responsibilities. Uh, so a day in the life of, of me is uh, looking from an ethnographic frontline perspective at the problems that we have in healthcare. And those problems can be anything from how do we better uh, make decisions about pharmacotherapy at the bedside? How do we implement the rational use of technology to help providers make better decisions? To how can we think about a new tool or device or mindset to organize the way in which we schedule infusion or schedule operations? And my role is really in partnering with outside uh, partners, whether it's three guys in a garage in Palo Alto or the Google and the UHGs, United Health Groups of the world, uh, to develop those solutions. So that is the day in the life. It goes from uh, seeing patients in the emergency department to having academic meetings uh, to meeting with small companies to having uh, discussions about whether we're going to make a large investment in a company. All right, wonderful. And one more tag on question that I have for you, because as, as I found your profile and started doing my own personal research on you, aka um, cyber stalking you. Um, I saw information also about this thing called the Care Innovation Center. So wanted to ask, could you maybe share some highlights on what that is and, and the goals of that program? Yeah, so the Care Innovation Center is a center that uh, myself and two partners, Kimberly Muller and Jennifer Weiler, founded uh, probably three years ago that specifically looks at a way in which healthcare can partner with industry to develop solutions. And when you think about industry, uh, when you think about the Googles or the Amazons or just think of any small startup, navigating healthcare is incredibly complicated. So we developed this center to partner with industry to help them navigate healthcare because it's incredibly complicated and not intuitive. And 
so that they could help us solve problems that we can't solve without their help. Uh, and that's really the long, long and short of it. Uh, we always think about our ideal partners as having three components. Um, our best partners are the ones where we are a customer, so we need their services or their product to deliver the care we need. Uh, we are also an equity and a revenue or a partner as well, so that when we work with companies to create value, uh, we participate in that value creation. So those are the, the components of the Care Innovation Center from a 50,000-foot uh, view. But essentially, we're trying to solve problems in healthcare that are vexing to the 4,000 hospitals across the country and uh, implement those solutions. All right, wonderful. No, I appreciate you going along with each of those uh, extra tag-on questions there. Uh, Dr. Zane, we'd love to move you to the next question. And um, for many of my past guests, I've been calling this question kind of the dark place question, but would love for you to take us back on a journey to a point that you would consider perhaps your worst moment as a healthcare leader, but really take us into that moment, share the story, but also share with us some of the decisions that you were trying to go through to turn that moment around. I have hundreds of those stories, to be honest with you. Uh, I think that I'll give you a, a, a couple examples in their specific patients. So if I stumble a little bit or go slowly, it's because I'm being excruciatingly careful to be compliant with, with HIPAA. Understand. Uh, I moved to Colorado in 2012. I was in Boston for 14 years prior to that. Uh, Boston, uh, Massachusetts, as you may know, I had universal health care by the time I'd left in 2012. When I came to Colorado, that was not the case. And working in a big urban emergency department, uh, we saw a lot of patients who were, uh, had, had challenging resource needs. And I'll never forget uh, one of the patients I saw because she was uh, a single mother of two children who had simply stepped off the curb and had sustained a trimalleolar fracture. And to your listeners who are not medical, essentially means when the bones in your ankle sort of split apart. And it means that it will not heal properly without an operation. So she came to the emergency department and I took care of her, uh, but she didn't need an, an operation emergently. In fact, uh, it's better if you go home and can elevate your leg and the swelling goes down and you have a, an operation days or even maybe a week afterwards. And because she was an undocumented immigrant and uninsured, uh, it was nearly impossible to get her a scheduled outpatient uh, surgery. And that single instance um, has really uh, haunted me. Uh, and that has informed the way in which I practice, um, what I do, how I operate, um, and what my belief system is. Uh, other dark um, stories are really not so dark. Uh, I remember when I first came and was taking care of patients, uh, I was taking care of a patient who was in his 60s and had epistaxis, which is a, a nosebleed. And a nosebleed, to be honest with you, as long as it's not, you're not a complicated patient on blood thinners who's had cancer in their nose or their face, it's not very complicated to take care of. It really is just putting in uh, a nasal uh, tampon. Uh, which is a special kind of uh, absorbent uh, material that you put in the nose. I saw the patient with one of my trainees. It took about five minutes to decide what the right thing to do. And then it took me 50 minutes to figure out where this thing was because our system of organization was so uh, bad that 
we were being uh, really disrespectful to both patients and providers uh, because we were so disorganized. And that led me to lead a reorganization with a lot of other partners and help uh, to our emergency care system. Uh, and that system has been reproduced now at 60 uh, different systems across the country. Well, Dr. Zane, I appreciate you touching on both of those stories. Um, you know, I share with you just a little bit. So for my background in healthcare, I spent the first four years of my healthcare career working at Duke Health. Um, and I was the primary uh, engineer within our trauma and emergency services groups. And from many kind of shared examples of, you know, how we um, managed undocumented immigrants to the need to completely redesign ERs. Um, you know, I, I've been there and I've seen it for many years and then even in positions that I've held since. Let me ask you, so, you know, when we talk about the need to decompress emergency departments for the 13 years that I've been doing healthcare quality and process improvement work, it's been the same story, the same needs. Um, just from your view of the world, is there any progress being made in that in that area of focus for healthcare? I think that we've made uh, dramatic progress uh, and we've written about it and published it and we've had a lot of people come visit. So I'll, I'll just give you some very high level examples the, the, and then a couple action items. The first action item uh, was the first person I hired was an industrial engineer who was not in healthcare. Um, but when I came to the University of Colorado, the emergency department was um, simply overrun. And as you know, uh, there are certain process metrics of emergency care which sort of define the efficiency and, and quality, for lack of a better term. Uh, some of those process measures are how many patients come to the emergency department and leave before they're seen or evaluated, so left without being seen. Another process measure is how long it takes uh, to care for patients, whether they're admitted or they're discharged. And with your background in emergency care, I know you know these well. The other is how long or how often you're on ambulance uh, diversion, and then what your patient satisfaction scores are. So when I came, the left without being seen rate uh, was not really measurable because so many people would walk in and walk out before even someone wrote down their name. So it was much higher than what was measured, but it was somewhere between five and, and 9%. Uh, we were on ambulance diversion, uh, one out of every four hours uh, that we were open. And the time it took from a patient coming to a doctor seeing them was almost an hour. Uh, the time it took to, to take care of patients was in the multiple hours uh, and not national, not according to national uh, metrics. Uh, also, our patient satisfaction scores were probably a rounding error over zero, as were our provider satisfaction scores. So we undertook a comprehensive front-to-back, beginning-to-end process redesign where we said that anything was on the table, but there were some guiding principles. Um, the guiding principles were that we were going to be patient-centered. And patient centricity is talked about all over the country all the time. Sometimes it's meaningful, sometimes it's meaningless. Um, to me, it means that if you can't articulate why an idea or an action is gonna benefit a patient, I'm not gonna talk about it and we're not gonna entertain it. So patient centricity means positively benefiting a patient. The next thing was being data driven. And that means that if we could measure it, we were gonna measure it. And if it was meaningful, we were gonna act on it and believe it to be true. Uh, and we were gonna be guided, not just by uh, what we thought the right thing to do was, but by how our measured published results 
uh, were improving or not. The other was this concept of central discipline and local control. And the central discipline means that we as an organization decide how it is that we're going to act and behave and what's important to us. And local control means that every individual, whether you're an attending physician, a nurse, a tech, a housekeeper, has to execute on that central discipline uh, because we are taking care of patients and lives are on the line. So with those guiding principles, we had a complete reorganization of our emergency department uh, process. And with the same number of beds, we went from left without being seen of 9% or so to unmeasurable. We went from a door to doctor time of about an hour or more to less than 15 minutes, 100% of the time. Uh, our turnaround time uh, went from many, many hours uh, to less than three hours for patients who were discharged uh, from the hospital. And we've never been on ambulance diversion since. And we've reproduced that process at 17 different emergency departments in our system and multiple systems from across the country have reproduced that. So I think that if you have a singular laser focus on what the right thing to do is, uh, and you're unapologetic in your execution, that you actually can move the needle. Uh, what I found is that there are a lot of people making excuses about why we can't do things. And the things that we can't do are because one, people don't like change, uh, and two, uh, they like to protect their turf. And we didn't protect turf and we embraced change. All right, so Dr. Zane, I um, when I release these shows, I always try to pull out a part of the show to use as a clip and, you know, with some of the basic advertising that I do. And everything you just shared there, I think is totally clip worthy. Um, so many great points from the success that you and your teams had from the redesigns that you did. But even those last couple of statements around the need for change and really just having the guts to take it on being um, relentless in, in the improvement work that you're doing. Uh, I love it all, and I appreciate you sharing. And want to move you to the next question. So thank you. We're going to get out of the dark place for a little bit now. Um, Dr. Zayn, uh, next question I have for you. We'd love for you to give our quality people one tip, tool, or a tactic that you found works really well for building up those intimate connections within project teams. Um, share with us what it is, and how do you apply it? Uh, I think that the most important thing is that uh, you have to be really careful about your team selection. There's no difference, and I'm gonna be overly dogmatic here, but that's okay. Uh, there's no difference between putting together a world-class Super Bowl NFL team and putting together a project management team. Everybody has a role, everybody's role is important, and you need nothing but all-stars. And the weakest player can take down a team. Um, in order to do that, you have to be unapologetic on what the goals are, you have to be uh, very transparent on what accountability means, uh, and you have to tell people what it is that success looks like and what failure looks like. That being said, um, you have to encourage open communication. You have to encourage dissent when, when there is dissension, and people have to feel as though they are protected. They will never be a scapegoat. Everybody's opinion is valued, uh, and that we make decisions. And decisions may not be consistent with what their views are, but there'll be a transparent, communicated understanding of why a decision was made. And I think that with those, that overview, uh, teams can be very successful. Uh, but, you know, the, the bottom line is teams are made of people, and the quality of the teams has everything to do with the people and the leadership of those people. That's perfect. And, Dr. Zen, let me, let me tag on to that thought then. 
Um, what do you do in situations where, um, you know, some of your team members may not be as strong as you need them to be? Um, and, and the reason I ask that is because I'm actually working with some groups now where we are having similar situations and what we're, what we're doing is developing something of an assessment process. So now it's an objective approach to assessing not just the needs of the team, the team members, but the project dynamics. But I'm just curious from your view of the world again, um, have you had that situation? And if you have, what are some ways to approach getting all the team members to the same par level? Uh, so that's, that's a great question. Uh, and you know, the answers sometimes are, are more simple and not as warm and fuzzy as you'd like. So the first is that we can't have teams that are made of all A players. Uh, there's no such thing. If we had all A players, then every team would, every, every game would, would end in a draw. Uh, so there's no such thing as having A players. What defines a leader and what defines a team is how many C players become B players, how many B players become A players, and how many A players stay on the team and stay A players. And then one of the critical decisions that a leader has to make is when a C player cannot become a B player to move that person to something different or move them off the team. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, but it's incredibly important and defining for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it's not respectful to the team to have someone who can't do the work or won't do the work. Uh, and it's also not respectful to that person because they may be in the wrong environment. Perfect. I think that was very well stated. Um, wonderful. No tag on questions there. So, uh, Dr. Zane, I'll move you to the next question, which is uh, if you could share with us maybe one of the best aha moments that you've had as a healthcare leader. But again, Walk us through that moment, um, share with us how or when the idea may have struck you, and then also if you were able to turn it into a personal or professional success. So I think one of the, the best aha moments was uh, when I first took the job as chair of emergency medicine, uh, no one knew who I was because I was a guy from across the country, and I was here living without my family for a few months. So I would come to my office and do my work and have my meetings, and then I would go to my little single sad uh, executive apartment, I would change into my civilian clothes and I'd come back and I'd sit in the waiting room and I would just watch. And my aha moment came when I realized that people were the providers, the healthcare providers had simply become immune uh, to suffering. They had simply become immune to suffering and they couldn't see a way out. And my aha moment came when a couple weeks after, and I did this for probably five weeks, six weeks, three nights a week. Uh, the aha moment came when I came to a, a meeting of all the, the charge nurses and I walked in in my suit and three of the charge nurses recognized me and they couldn't figure out where they'd recognized me before. And then I told them and then everybody sort of looked at me and said, oh, this is going to be an interesting ride. So that was an aha moment, I think, for them. Uh, one of the other many aha moments I had was we had looked at the delivery of care and we had looked at the process really from the lens of a patient. And we had thought that triage and a waiting room were useless because the only thing triage does is it lets you decide who is going to wait. And if we're actually delivering care, people shouldn't wait. And we were using a process that went back to the Napoleonic times in battlefield care. And the aha moment was if we eliminate triage and simply put care at the front end of the emergency department, patients wouldn't have to wait. And that was a dramatic change because 
triage nurses were the heroes of, of emergency care. Uh, doctors who didn't have to look at a busy waiting room didn't feel the pressure of patient suffering in the waiting room. And the aha moment came that uh, it actually worked. Patients don't have to wait. You can see them right away. We don't need triage. Uh, and patients were happier and they got better care and it was faster. So uh, again, Dr. Zane, I, I love both of those examples for your aha moment. And the one thing that I, I think personally, I'm starting to like clue in on is that many of your stories revolve definitely around exceptional leadership um, between yourself and I'm sure many of the team members that, uh, that you've partnered with throughout your journey. Let me ask, where did the role for change management also come in with a lot of the work that you and your team um, ha have embarked on? How has that played a role or an impact with the success that you guys have been having? It is the defining moment. It is definitionally uh, what defines success and failure, uh, leadership and change management and culture. That is what defines an organization and that what, that's what defines uh, success. You cannot have a successful organization without a competent, qualified leader. Uh, you can't change or have change unless the people on the team and the people involved are embracing or understand the change and you can't do good if you have a toxic culture uh, so culture and change management and leadership are central to everything uh, every organization whether it's a healthcare organization a hospital a gas station a restaurant or a fortune 500 company absolutely it's that uh that three-legged stool right there so um Awesome response. I'm going to move you down to the next question, Dr. Zane, and would love to get your thoughts on this, but what are some of the current challenges taking place across the, or excuse me, challenges, what are some of the current changes taking place across the healthcare industry that you're excited about right now, and what role do you see quality professionals or even future innovation professionals, healthcare professionals, playing to promote or support its longevity? I think that this is probably one of the most exciting times that has ever existed in healthcare. I think if we go back to the beginning of healthcare, we can think about who was that first scientist that thought that cowpox and smallpox looked similarly and noticed that cows who had experienced cowpox don't ever get it again and invented the first vaccine. And that was a vaccine for, for smallpox. I think the next was the first time someone noticed that uh, mold growing on bread uh, impeded bacterial growth and discovered penicillin. Uh, then the next genius who discovered human transplantation, and then we can think of uh, the human genome being mapped. I think this phase of healthcare really has to do with big data, data science, and prescriptive analytics and machine learning. And what machine learning combined with uh, human adjudication is gonna do for healthcare and quality uh, is gonna be mind boggling. Uh, the next generation of healthcare providers uh, will look back on what we've been doing for the last 20 years, the way we look back at leeches uh, and bloodletting back in the 1800s. All right, that is, uh, that's one heck of a statement there. So I'm really, excited about just the way you kind of presented what um, the things you're excited about. Let me ask this. Um, what are some of the things that quality professionals, and again, just maybe even healthcare leaders as a whole, 
what are some things that the healthcare industry should do or can do to become a more attractive place to continue pulling in all these qualified and very talented professionals to help do exactly what you just shared there? Well, first, let's, let's start on a positive note. Uh, being a healthcare provider is one of the single most important honorable professions that any one person can have. There's no other industry, uh, maybe teaching, uh, where you can have such an incredible impact on so many people. And whether you are a primary care doctor or family physician working in an office, seeing one patient at a time and preventing that patient from having a disease or, or discovering a disease, uh, to a CEO of a large healthcare system who makes a specific change that changes the lives of hundreds of thousands of, of people. So a career in healthcare um, is just fundamentally rewarding and it's exciting every single day, no matter what aspect of healthcare delivery you're in. I think that what we need to do to continue to keep it uh, so exciting is, and now I'm speaking from a healthcare provider perspective, uh, we need to make sure that people don't bankrupt their lives in order to become physicians. Uh, the corollary to that is we need to make sure that patients don't bankrupt their lives uh, because they become patients. So we have to think about how we are funding healthcare in this country and how we're funding healthcare education and training in this country uh, because the current path is simply unsustainable. And I don't know if it's unsustainable in the next year or the next decade or two decades, but it's unsustainable. And in order for it to be more respectful, uh, deliver better quality care, we need to understand what we're doing and we need to get our house in order. Perfect. I, I, I don't have any follow-up questions on that because I think you're 100% right. But um, let, me, let me maybe kind of shift the mindset a little bit because uh, I also read through some of your bio information, maybe some of the work that you're doing through AHRQ. Is there anything kind of, again, in that innovation space or even the research space that also starts to touch at maybe not just the innovations, but some of the funding and other opportunities, as you're mentioning? Is there anything just coming down the pike in general that we can start to put on our radars as quality people and healthcare professionals? Yes. Uh, data transparency, uh, access, and interoperability, I think, are going to be game changers in healthcare. Uh, and if you look at uh, HHS and Health and Human Services and CMS, that has been their big push. Uh, so right now we have a really dysfunctional uh, problem with interoperability. You can be a patient in one institution and get a number of tests and therapies and go to a different institution who happens to have a different electronic medical record and they don't talk to each other. Their proprietary uh, tests get repeated that don't need to be repeated uh, or diagnoses get missed because they weren't available. So this issue of interoperability uh, for electronic medical records is gonna be crucial and differentiating in the next decade. The next is this issue of data aggregation, access, uh, and normalization. And right now, CMS has a really interesting pro project called the Blue Button Project, where they have made all Medicaid and Medicare uh, claims data normalized and available for any entrepreneur, whether it's Google or uh, three women in a garage in Denver, to mine and produce uh, products from. And we are going to begin to see things that 
we will not have envisioned that will specifically impact the way we deliver care. All right, exceptional. Um, I appreciate those extra tidbits. And I know that one's going to go pretty well with the crew that has been plugging into the show so far. So thank you very much. Um, Dr. Zane, I'm happy to share that you're doing great and you've made it to the halfway point of the show. And we're going to move into a part that we call the two-minute drill. But I always like to do a quick check and see how you're doing. Make sure you're ready to roll. I'm ready. All right, perfect. Well, Dr. Zane, the uh, next question that I have for you is a two-parter. First, I would love for you to tell our quality people something about your current role that inspires you to do your best, but then also share with us, how do you inspire others within your organization? The, what inspires me to do my best is that I, I fundamentally believe that if I do my job well, people live instead of die, uh, period. End of story, no further elaboration. Uh, I think that the role that I have and many people across the country uh, means that if we do it well and we do it the right way and we execute uh, and we're competent, that there are people who otherwise would have died who would have lived. And that's someone's mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, uh, grandmother, aunt. So every day, that's how I approach my job, whether I'm doing working with companies looking at venture capital or being a doctor in the emergency department, which I still do, uh, my lens is as a healthcare provider. And I believe that what I do fundamentally impacts people. And that's how I try and inspire the organization, is that what we do matters. Uh, people across the country have many different jobs and what everybody does matter uh, matters, but what we do will impact someone's life in a very specific and direct way. And you have the opportunity to save someone's life, make it dramatically better, uh, where otherwise people, other people don't have that, that opportunity. And what we do saves people's lives. Excellent. And Dr. Zane, what is the best piece of career advice that you've ever received? Uh, lead follower, get out of the way. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Um, Dr. Zane, this is something of a new tester kind of a question. So I'm throwing it out to see if it's going to be something I keep long term. But again, love for you to go with me on this. But if you could trade jobs with anyone in your organization, with whom would it be and why? Um, there is not a single person in my organization I would trade jobs with. Uh, I think I have the single most interesting job in my organization. Uh, there are people whose salary I would trade, uh, <laughs> but there isn't a single person whose job I would trade. All right, perfect. I, I could respect that. And next question I have for you is, could you please share a personal habit that contributes to your success when leaving quality improvement initiatives? Uh, never miss an opportunity to shut up. Oh, well, let me ask. I'm a, uh, I got to expand on that one. Any any examples of how that is applied? Uh, there isn't, one doesn't always have to have to fill a space, uh, which means that if people are doing great work, uh, recognize them, don't feel as though you have to re-explain it, reiterate it. Uh, if you're in a meeting, don't feel as though you're the, you have to always say something and you have to dominate a conversation. Uh, never miss an opportunity to shut up. All right, perfect. Thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Zane, what is your go-to website or mobile uh, application for executing on the work that you lead? Uh, I don't think I have a singular go-to website or application. Um, I'll tell you that I look to non-healthcare sources of education and information to help me. Uh, and probably what I've been listening to the most, and I apologize for plugging another podcast <laughs> other than yours, uh, but the Harvard Business Review has a podcast called Cold Call, uh, which is, to me, 
you know, 11 to 19 minutes of really crucial information uh, that I can get. And I spend a lot of time looking at health affairs in the Harvard Business Review. All right, wonderful. No, no, no trouble at all plugging another podcast. Um, so I appreciate that as, as a resource for our listeners to also plug in with. Um, and that actually leads in perfectly with my next question, which is, um, could you please share a professional society or a professional conference that you think is a value add also for our listeners to consider plugging in with? Uh, so the, the society that I am most involved in, which is not well known, is HIPS, the Health Innovators Professional Society, uh, which is a group of 33 chief innovation officers across the country uh, where we have the opportunity to meet, share, discuss new ideas in a very safe environment. Um, but what I could say to your listeners is there is no single society or single uh, conference that is going to meet your needs. Uh, and that you probably have to have your toes in a number of different places. All right, wonderful. And um, I just have to comment, HIPS are the acronyms for your group? Yes. <laughs> all right, wonderful. You got a little- And we are all, we're all hipsters. Oh, there you go. That That's the official motto, huh? <laughs> yep. All right, wonderful. Uh, thanks, Dr. Zane, for that. And um, next question is, could you please recommend a book? for our quality people. Um, but also, again, share um, what is the book, but why would it be a good recommendation for them to check out? I have two books. Um, one book, the first book is called The Quality Cure, written by David Cutler. And the reason why that's a great book is because it doesn't give you a single uh, approach or a singular perspective. It gives you examples and many examples of successful quality uh, turnarounds, for lack of a better term. I find that there are examples throughout the whole book of different organizations and different ways, essentially a group of short stories, uh, that you can take a lot from. Uh, and again, there's never, there's no such thing as a cut and paste and no two organizations or two problems are identical, but they're more similar than they are dissimilar. And there's a lot of learning when you can look at a, a myriad of different problems and the different ways that different organizations have have approached them. There's a commonality and a recognition of difference. Uh, the second book is called Measure What Matters, and that was written by John Doerr. And that really uh, looks at the absolute unapologetic importance of understanding data and outcomes and embracing them. All right, wonderful. Um, I'm not familiar with the first one. I am familiar with the second, but um, again, I think those would be exceptional books for our uh, quality people to plug into. Um, let me ask this, would there be anything, uh, whether it's a book, a publication, um, anything from, again, kind of your innovation view of the world that would also kind of tie into to those recommendations? Yes, The Innovator's Dilemma, which really uh, okay. looks at the history and approach to innovation and how different approaches have been successful and different approaches have not been successful, why, and gives examples from across the industry. Perfect. Thanks for that add-on. And uh, Dr. Zane, we are right there at our last question, but just giving you the heads up now, this is kind of the biggie. So I would love to try to get you to reflect on your past while also looking forward to your future. And, and let's say if you're able to send one text message to yourself 10 years into the past and one text message to yourself 10 years into the future, Take a second to think about it, but what would you communicate in both of those messages? Uh, I think if I could communicate to myself 10 years ago, uh, it would simply say, chill out. 
And if I could communicate to my future self in, in 10 years, uh, I would say appreciate the moment. All right. Wonderful. Well, and I, I was just about to say, Dr. Zane, we, we went the whole podcast without any um, jokes about, you know, Colorado and the, the marijuana, um, you know, culture that's over there. So the chill out is exactly where my head went for that one. But Oh, well, I, I would, then I want to retract it because I would never say anything <laughs> that would in any way endorse what I think is the pathetic marijuana culture of Colorado. All right, fair enough. And I'm a Floridian. I've never been. I've just heard about it. So, um, but no, seriously, um, Dr. Zane, I can't tell you enough again how much I just appreciate you coming on to the show. I think all of the feedback that you shared has tremendous amount of value. So I look forward to getting this show cleaned up and, and put out for our listeners to listen to. But would love to end the day with you, end the conversation with you giving out a parting piece of advice for our quality people, uh, maybe sharing the best way that they can follow or connect with you on social media, and then we'll officially sign off. Uh, I think the best piece of advice I can, I can give people uh, is to unapologetically embrace change and data transparency. Uh, really be unequivocal about what it is that you're trying to do what success is and what failure is. And when you've succeeded, move on to the next thing. And when you've failed, learn from it and move on. The best way to find me on social media is on the uh, UC Healthcare Innovations uh, website. Perfect. Well, Dr. Zane, I appreciate you, your, your knowledge, your input, everything you shared today. Uh, to our quality people everywhere, thank you for listening and making us a part of your day. This is Jarvis Gray signing off. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Quality Cast, brought to you by the Quality Coaching Company. If you love the Healthcare Quality Cast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review. Until next time.